Let's go ahead and get into the word. We are returning now to where we have uh, left off several months ago. It was December, I believe, when we started to make a shift and be able to personally address the things that related to why we are here. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, as we've moved through that, we come back to our Old Testament teachings because it's very important to know that he was also with them. The historical figures that we read about, the ones who, by pictures, life pictures, teach us the principles that we both study in the New Testament and live out in our lives daily. That's why it's important to have these foundations that come both in the reading and the teaching in the Old Testament. And so in 1 Kings right now, where we left off, and I'll give you that page, we're going to be back into the 20th chapter. We didn't move through it yet, but I'm going to conclude on one point there, and then we move into 21. The Revision of Decision was the title. You'll get it in a second. The Revision of decision. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your blessings that as we consider your word and what you are saying to us, what you have been whispering to us, Lord, the things that you have indeed shown us, we want to be responsive. We see in the scriptures there are men and women and children that are unresponsive, but we want to be responsive to you. We want to have all our decisions that we make pleasing to you. And there are things that we know as we inventory both our lives, consequences, and decisions we have made, that we can always have a expectancy of a good outcome if we're walking in obedience to you. And so thank you for hearing us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the title that sounds perhaps interesting, we're hearing the term revisionist in our culture today. The fact that there is an effort to revise the history of the United States. The fact that there is a cultural bent in revising God's plan of marriage revisionist. We've seen it in the area of biology, a revisionist perspective. We've seen it in a variety of areas as well in terms of our own governance, both in law and in the meeting of legislatures, doing things that are revisionary moving away from things that are to be actually established. The Proverbs tell us that we're not to remove the ancient boundaries. Ancient ones, people that get old, will eventually, by the very nature of what that imposes on us, we will be removed little by little, person by person. It happens. But there are things with regard to God's principles and as we talked about and have been in really learning about Israel 
and then moving parallel to that with the church. These things are not going to be removed, but they will be challenged, and then God himself will make corrections and adjustments. And so in this story, what we see is this lineage of kings that have come to rule, but their rulings have been contrary to God's heart. And so we take a look back again on a familiar life that we've been tracking for several chapters. And we're going to see ultimately an outcome that may surprise you. But when you think about what God has done in our life, maybe not as surprising as we might believe. God is a very merciful, gracious, and patient God. And even to what we would say are the most undeserving, unmerited, unqualified, he is patient towards and gracious. And so with that, we want to be able to look and see the story for what it reveals, how God's handling it, how people that are ministers on behalf of God, how they're dealing with it as well. It's all wrapped up here in chapter 21. Let me precede that, though, with a word such as what Joshua proclaimed at the close of his tenure when things were wrapping up, when agedness was falling upon him, when he realized that as the way Moses had gone, it was now his turn to say goodbye to the generation that he had faithfully led, and it was put upon his heart to make this declaration. Back in Joshua 24, he says this in the 15th verse, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, verse 16, and the refrain, so the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. The preamble to what he was saying happened in verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. So isn't it interesting that this man who served in faithfulness to Moses all of those years and then was the general that was given the permission and the command that he would take Israel over, cross them over into the new land, and he would have this put on his heart to say, meaning something had happened. The people that Moses had led out of Egypt, which speaks of social and cultural corruption and godlessness, bringing them into a land that God would show them and brought them in faithfully, that Joshua made all of these incredible conquests as God led him through, and then to have his final words being a warning to the people. And yet the people, at least some, perhaps not all, were able to say, far be it, far be it, we will serve 
the Lord. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. One who in the lineage of being a king that would have been familiar with that story as all the kings in the lineage of Israel's rulings, both the northern kingdom that was housed now in Samaria and the southern kingdom, which maintained the traditional historic uh, site of Jerusalem, that was Judah, they all had the same history books. There was no revisionism to them. But it seems that something corrupted the majority of them on the Israel side, the northern kingdom. And what we find out is that it was having a soft heart towards the appeal of culture and the things seeming that the world would offer, but having a hard heart towards the things that God required. That's the only thing that makes sense in the strategy. So as we talked about before, now returning to First Kings, what we need to be mindful of, I'll just move through it very quickly, are the things that Israel was to be mindful of. And the first would have simply have been heresy. Are you obeying the commands of God? Apostasy. Are you still following in the ways of God? Or have you turned your back on God? The third thing we had talked about, apathy. You do not care any longer for the things of God. You do not care for your fellow man and for seeing that they are aware of both the requirements of God and the necessity of honoring him. We talked about that fourth problem that both the church has and also Israel has had, and that was simply a lethargy. When you don't care, all of a sudden you get tired about caring for anything except yourself. And another one that has come to my mind even just now, and that's complacency. That's when a critical assessment of others replaces an appropriate critical evaluation of yourself. It's those guys, it's those people that are wrong. And mind you, I'm not talking about immoral cultural bents. I'm talking about when our brothers and sisters become the focus of criticism and we say to ourselves, ah, but for me, I'm doing really awesome, pretty good. That's what complacency does. A critical eye on somebody else and a less critical eye on yourself. Almost a self-exaltation. These are the dangers. Chapter 21 opens stating this, and it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. What do we know happened before this attention? What happened in the close of chapter 20 was this. He had heard a corrective word, and it says that in that hearing, Verse 43, so the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. That was his attitude. Attitudes affect 
ultimately, I suppose what we would say, a corrective heart, a means by which we can change things. Because in this, this idea of the revision of decision, it means not trying to change other things, but to see how God will effectually work on behalf of himself to move sovereignly in your favor. As you show favor to God, how does he move sovereignly to bring himself glory in our circumstances and our life? The sovereignty of God. God acting on his behalf regardless of the behavior of men. I think that's a good definition. God acting on his behalf regardless of the behavior of men. And so as he's been sulking, as he has found himself depressed because he was unwilling to accept a charge given to him, he moves now into looking at what was not his. Covetousness is basically his sin in this. He has led Israel in all of the things that I cited, namely heresy and apostasy, which led Israel into all of the other formats that I just mentioned. But Ahab spoke to Naboth. Why was he going to speak to him? As a good neighbor? As a friend? No, he's trying to take what is Naboth's exclusively because it borders his own lot. And so he says to him, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden. Right. Because it is near next to my house and for it, I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. It seems like an honorable request. But what we're going to find is that there's an inheritance that's greater than what money would offer or a vineyard that could persuade. There's an inheritance that this man, Naboth, is completely invested in. Do you know that the church has an inheritance that has been promised by God in our relationship with Jesus Christ? And it exceeds anything that the world would say, I will buy that from you. I will give you this in return for that. That's corruption. It's seduction. It appeals to the things that are still persuasively human in us. And it sidesteps the greater work of God, which is divine in us. We are told that there is a war that goes on within us on what we will do for God or what we will not do in obedience to the Lord. And we can easily find ourselves who, like Ahab, simply continues on in our way and not on the way that pleases the Lord. This is what's happening right now. So maybe the offer is, from Ahab's perspective, reasonable. Generally, the world gives us offers that to them are reasonable. And when we decline, they become unreasonable. It moves on simply to say, Naboth said to Ahab in verse 3, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance 
of my father's to you. Are you able to say in that line, the Lord forbid that I give what God has given to me and the fathers of faith, the word of testimony, that which I have known from my parents to my grandparents to my great grandparents. Many of us have come with divisions in our lineages of family. Not all of our families have followed in the ways of the Lord. So how is it that we could be here now and say that we are in that? Because God is in a work by his spirit in which a greater family has been given to you. And we are those who as a church have an altogether different course, even than what our parents could have given to us. But most of us had been introduced to the Lord by our parents. If not, we represent in this body parents of those who were without parents, moral agents of a message that is divine by those who have only seen and lived in immorality. That's why every single one of us can say, oh Lord, forbid that I would find myself complacent, looking at others critically and not having the examination that I know this word provides. The body of Christ avails themselves too. How often have you been encouraged by somebody within the church in a word that you heard you needed it in that moment because you were so discouraged you were ready to go. You were ready to leave the things of God. Salvation came because in the lineage of faith, in your inheritance, in what awaits all of us, you clung to it. You didn't sell out. You won't sell out. This is what Naboth is saying. I'm not selling out. I'm not selling out. It's not worth any money you could offer me. It's not worth the prestige of saying, ooh, look what the king gave me in my vineyards. I've got the best winery in town. None of that is worth what I have been given and what I hold fast to. And so as this continues, Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased. Don't you see this pattern that he has? He doesn't have happy days. He's always depressed. He's always sullen. He's always looking at what's the next thing that I can have if somebody else is to satisfy me, not wanting to change as he has been exhorted for the purposes of even what this title would be devised for the revision of decision. Haven't you made stupid decisions they have so far? Great prophets have confronted you. You live only because of the grace of God, his desire to endure you when he could completely pour his wrath out upon you. And this is what's important to know is that God's patience seems to exhaust any of ours for sure. And so Naboth right now has provoked because he will not budge on this, the feelings of Ahab to just be depressed. I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and he turned away his face and would not eat any food. This is him throwing a pity party on his bed of depression. Verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, 
Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? We know he's not fasting for God's heart. He's just depressed and has no appetite. He said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. She just told him he had authority. His authority was rebuked by a man who had an inheritance. And so she now conspires to get this for him. This was a couple whose marriage was not made in heaven. It seems to be one of the most hellish alliances that the Bible declares about a couple that worked either in unison against the things of God or independently of one another and yet for the same outcome, godlessness, wickedness, evil vendettas over the innocence of people and in spite of the charity of God. And so she wrote letters. Here's what she does. It kind of sounds like what we do today in our government. And so in Ahab's name, she sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honors among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king then take him out and stone him, that he may die. It sounds like something that the Lord endured as well, didn't he? Scoundrel witnesses that testified seemingly against him as they lied for the purpose of charging the Lord with blasphemy. Scoundrels. There are scoundrels out there who will endeavor to lie. We've actually, as a culture, endorsed Lying To me, if I had to make a first law on that one, I'd say, you shall not lie. Ooh, where did I hear that from? Wait, God said it. We're not to bear false witness. God doesn't like lying. It's a terrible thing. And especially when lies are then, if you would, turned a talking point into truth. Your truth. My truth. Somebody's truth. But it's not God's truth. That's what lying has done. To the generation below us and the next generation following, if then, their future is being built on redefining words that mean something. So we need to understand how that corrupts and changes the demographics of a healthy and vital church. But the past teachings have been, even though this sounds like a whoa, 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 it is, and we've been learning what happens when the trumpet sounds and bowls are poured out of judgments from heaven by God on a Christ-rejecting world. The time for the church to be taken into heaven is very close. So the message is only compelling us to say, stay active with God. Stay humble before God. Stay close to your brothers and sisters. Give the invitation you ought to come and see what the Lord is doing. 
You ought to come and be a part of something that is vital to your future destiny, to live with God forever, to be rewarded for that which you do for him on earth presently. And so the lie goes out. The men of the city in verse 11, the elders, nobles who were inhabitants of the city did as Jezebel had sent to them as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And the two men, the scoundrels, verse 13, came in and sat before him and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth in the presence of the people saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. Then they took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Isn't it interesting that in tracking Jezebel and Ahab, their life had nothing to do with God and that she would now form a lying proclamation in her husband's name saying, this is about God, blaspheming God and challenging the king. They had nothing to do with God. So how is it that a godless society and a culture which indeed we live in would invoke the name of God when in fact much of what they do is the true blasphemy of God, not acknowledging the work of God and the call by the Spirit to come, to believe, to put your trust in the Lord. And there are so many that are using God's name in what appears to be a sense of reverence and honor, and yet it's actually just a deceit to justify what they want to do. Our culture says God is love, and love is expressed in multitudes of ways, and this is God's heart. Not true. It's expressed in one way by God giving himself to a world that he so loved, a world that when he came to earth rejected him. But this world that he died for in love does not have the privilege to reauthor the definition of love that God himself has authored. Well, Naboth had not blasphemed and yet he is falsely accused and he's executed is what it says. They sent to Jezebel saying Naboth had been stoned and is dead, verse 15, and it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. She's rejoicing in accomplishing a heinous crime against an innocent man, a neighbor. And so it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So this is now a turning of the page, or if you would, it's right after the commercial. And here's what happens, what comes on the scene. Important to know. It's a condemnation against Ahab. Notice who's involved in it. Then the word of the Lord, verse 17, came to Elijah the Tishbite, here he goes again. He's getting called into action because of that which was done against an innocent man. And here's what he's to do. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, 
who lives in Samaria, there he is, in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? Elijah was never the enemy. He was sent as a messenger. They were the enemies of God. Elijah was simply a prophet of great power, of reputation, and so often that's what the culture tells us. You are our enemy. We don't like you being our enemy. We will be justified in waging war against you. And the war goes on. You guys changed Roe versus Wade. You guys did this. You're our enemy. No, we're not. You're the enemy of God. We are the friends of God. And we're stewards of the message of God. And we're standing up for the innocent of God. And so he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. The warning that Joshua gave to the people was, don't sell yourself out. There's so much that God has brought you through. And you have a charge to carry on in the manner by which Moses led you and by which I have led you and proclaim this day. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The revision of decision, this is probably that moment. How are you going to not revise history or biology or politics? How are you going to be one who revises the decision that you've made contrary to God's will? In other words, in the prefix of that word, re, it means to do again. How can you have the opportunity to decide or to do again what you fail to do the first or second or third or fourth time? How can you change actually the narrative that you're writing about your life for a life that exemplifies God's heart and his desire for you to live life for him? Most of us have stories. We know exactly the day in which God challenged us to turn from the way that we were going to whom we are now. But it's not over. Because as we're walking now, God is still putting upon us this wonderful opportunity to bear both burdens of others and also to continue in being perfected in greater endowments of the Spirit. And so this prophecy that's going on right now is foretelling the consequence of Ahab's sin. It's foretelling the consequence of Ahab's sin. And so Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have said or sold yourself to do this evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you, and I will take away your posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your home like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. Verse 23, 
And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dog shall eat whatever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whatever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So she's not getting a compliment for being wife of the year. He chose wrongly. That's why we counsel young men and women. Choose wisely. Choose whom you will serve in the Lord who would be beside you following the ways of the Lord as you lead. Women as well, choose wisely. And so this is the pronouncement. It's very formidable. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before Israel. And so it was, notice this, this is important. This is a deciding moment. Ahab heard those words that he tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. This is a change. It's decisive. The revision of decision Here's what's going to happen as a result of that. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me because he has humbled humbled himself before me. And I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Just like that. Because seemingly what Ahab did wasn't simply theater. There was a sincere fear of God and what was going to be transacted. We may disagree with it. We may say he was unworthy of it. And the thing that we probably have to say is, well, what about a time in my life when I was not worthy of it, undeserving of it, the things that I did, the things that I didn't do? What about me? See, that's the thing about Ahab that we would say, I don't get it. Okay, all you have to do is study your life and see if you get it a little better. But if not, then I'm going to close with this so that we do have an understanding. And by the way, if it comforts you or helps you understand, Ahab's going to mess up again. But God didn't mess up on this. Here's what it says in Second Peter chapter 3, so that you might understand this principle. But God, I'm moving into halfway of that verse, but God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away. I'm going to stop there. He would that none should perish, because as we know, as we are to be prepared for, the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, And those whom are in the lineage and persuasion of idolatry and wickedness and unrighteousness and a misunderstanding of God, there will be a judgment upon them if they do not turn to the Lord. That's the story on that one. In 22, we'll see where his lineage will leave off. Does it complement the message that Elijah gave to him, or does it end up contradicting the message that Elijah gave to him? 
And the reason that that's important is that even you and I can find ourselves in living contradiction of the word that God has given to us. But I will tell you, you will probably not outlive God in what we would say the exhaustion of his patience could ever be. That's why it's always to our best to give our doubts to the Lord in what a person may become, not what we see them as. I was blessed to meet a man last night at the memorial that had gone through severe depression and the consequences of that and ultimately what he chose to do rendered a very severe handicap to him. But as I sidled over to him and as he was able to talk with me, I was blessed because he was here last night as a service for Kedrick that was pretty awesome. And he was touched by the Lord. And Rick is the one that continued to bring him blessed. His story is tragic, but he came into the house of the Lord that the consequence might not continue. 